Novartis, committed to making innovative medicines for a world of patients and their families. Online at Novartis.com. Novartis, think what's possible. Welcome to Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting June 14th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, an evolution update. We'll talk to freelance reporter Beth Baldwin, who recently attended a big molecular biology and evolution meeting, and Scientific American's paleontology and anthropology expert Kate Wong. We'll talk about some new wrinkles in human evolution that she found out about at another conference. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Beth Baldwin. She's an attorney, which may give her a special insight into evolution, seeing as how Darwin called his presentation of the case for it, quote, one long argument, end quote. Baldwin also closely follows evolution news. I met her at the Dover Intelligent Design Trial, and she reports on the subject for radio. I called her at her home in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, Steve. How are you? I'm fine. Good to talk to you. So you just returned uh, recently from the annual meeting of the Society for Molecular Biology and Evolution, and the specific conference was was called Genomes, Evolution, and Bioinformatics, right? That's, that's right. What, uh, what really stood out for you at the meeting? Well, there were a number of keynote addresses that were really interesting. The first one was given by a recent contributor to Scientific American. He's actually a physicist, not a biologist. His name is Laszlo Barabasi, and he discussed biological networks. Biological networks are a really hot topic because, as you know, the sequencing of multiple genomes has just generated a huge amount of information, and it's an amount of information that isn't really manageable at this point. So in order to mine the, the data, to make it usable, computer scientists and information scientists really need to collaborate with molecular biologists and evolutionary biologists and see if they can uh, generate anything that anybody can do anything with. So it's a, it's just a way to try to deal with the, the massive amounts of data that, that current technology enables you to generate? You know, that's right, and it's a specific way of dealing with it. Sort of picture the difference, if you can, between a plain old roadmap that you'd see in any Rand McNally atlas and um, what you see at the back of an in-flight magazine where, you know, airlines show their their routes, you really do see a hub-and-spoke kind of uh, visual image <clears throat> in terms of, you know, Chicago or Dallas or Atlanta, mm-hmm. just having a whole lot of connections. Uh, and some podout town, you know, in the middle of the boondocks, like Erie, Pennsylvania, <laughs> you know, doesn't have a lot of connections to it. And... The non-randomness of connections in those kinds of networks, uh, Barabasi and others have uh, analogized to the protein interactions that happen in biological systems, so that there's a preferential connection between important proteins and that less important proteins just aren't involved in as many pathways. That's really interesting. So what's what's the connection between that and evolution? Well, that's a great question because really when you think about it, they are really intimately related. Single cell life is the master of metabolism. There's so many different ways that unicellular life forms make their living, everything from, you know, 
hydrogen sulfide metabolism to ammonia metabolism to, uh, you know, ferrous ion metabolism. Multicellular life doesn't do that. Its metabolism is really conserved. There's not nearly the variety. But what uh, multicellular life learned to do was to manage information. And that's why uh, network biology and biological networks is such a pulse point now because being able to manage genetic information within a cell, turn it off and on when it needs to be turned off and on to develop, you know, the several hundred cell types uh, organism that we are is um, how multicellular life has linked just naked DNA to the physiology that makes multicellular life so diverse and interesting. That's great. What uh, what else jumped out at you from the meeting that you saw there? Well, uh, Sean Carroll, a geneticist who is both a professor at the uh, University of Wisconsin in Madison and a an investigator for the Howard Hughes uh, Medical Institute. And for him, I think, regulatory changes as opposed to protein changes in DNA solve a big problem in biology. And that's, as you may have, you know, heard the phrase, the complexity catastrophe. And that's the problem that happens when you have genes that have multiple effects, as we all know that genes do pleiotropic effects, epistatic effects where genes interact with one another. How do you change a protein sequence and not have it make uh, huge problems throughout an organism if one gene is having many effects? It's sort of like how do you remodel a 747 in flight? You're going to have problems. One of the ways to sort of circumvent that problem is the concept that's really hot now of regulatory evolution, that there are non-coding sequences that have and, to and do... Let, let's explain. A coding sequence would be a stretch of DNA that actually codes directly for a protein, for example. And a non-coding sequence would be another stretch of DNA that in some way is involved in whether or not that other protein is going to get made. That's exactly right. For example... A protein that makes melanin and thus makes pigmentation in a fruit fly versus that part of the DNA sequence that is pretty close to it. It may be, you know, hundreds to thousands of uh, nucleotide bases away, but it's on the same chromosome. There are areas upstream and downstream is the lingo of genes where these regulatory regions lie, and they are actually 5, 10 bases long, and they are binding sites. They are grooves sort of in the DNA where proteins, known as transcription factors, insert themselves, and their presence, some people think it causes the DNA to bend and loop and coil around so that the promoter sequences that actually start gene transcription get activated. These regulatory systems, if they are decoupled from the protein sequences themselves, you get a lot of sort of combinatorial power. You can change a regulatory sequence that might control whether the protein itself, the melanin, is expressed in a wing spot or in the veins that uh, are all through a wing or at the edge of a wing without changing the actual gene product. 
you can have big evolutionary change without having massive genomic change because you can just turn on or turn off the genes for certain things. You know, just by analyzing the genome, that only gives you so much info. There's a lot of other stuff going on in how the genome gets used. That's exactly right. You've probably heard the famous quote from Barbara McClinock. She uh, won the Nobel Prize for her work on uh, transposon, those jumping genes in Right, in, in corn, yeah. Yeah. Her quote is that if you give me a fertilized snail egg and I can control the timing when genes are turned off and on, I can make an elephant. You know, I mean, that's a rough translation, but that's wow. that's the concept. I that, never heard that. That's great. Yeah, that, that animal... Uh, genomes, the protein coding part of the of metazoan genomes is amazingly conserved, and that it is tinkering with when and where genes are turned off and on. That that's where we get the amazing morphological diversity that we see. Beth, thanks very much. Pleasure talking to you. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Steve. The Barabasi article for Siam that Baldwin talked about was in our May 2003 issue. It's available at www.siamdigital.com. Baldwin told me that at the end of Sean Carroll's talk, he put up a slide to illustrate the power of regulatory change. The slide featured this quote, Give me one example that proves evolution. One example. You can't. The next slide then had the attribution for the quote, Tom DeLay, House Majority Leader. The next slide then made the kind of tiny regulatory change that has major ramifications. It just added the letters EX so that delay was now, which he is, the ex-House Majority Leader. Minor change, big effect. You know, it's ironic. Delay famously said, quote, Our school systems teach the children that they are nothing but glorified apes who are evolutionized out of some primordial soup, end quote. What's ironic is that DeLay was an exterminator before joining Congress. He might have helped evolutionize pesticide-resistant insects. We'll be right back. Greetings, human. Want to share some thoughts about the podcast? Let us know what you think by participating in our survey at www.siam.com slash research. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a genetic predisposition for becoming an entrepreneur. A study with identical twins shows that if one twin has a freelance type career, the other has a significantly greater chance of also freelancing. Study 2. By using sounds decoded by the brain's higher learning centers, a new cell phone ringtone can only be heard by people with IQs over about 120. Story 3. Another cell phone item. High cell phone usage among teenagers may be a sign of depression or anxiety. And story 4. Most millipedes don't really come close to the thousand legs their name implies, but a species of millipede with almost 800 legs has been rediscovered after not being seen for 80 years. We'll be back with the answer, but first, Kate Wong. She's the editorial director of ScientificAmerican.com, and she's the magazine's resident paleo and anthropology expert. We talked at our offices in Manhattan. Hey, Kate, how you doing? I'm doing well, Steve. Thanks. And you just got back from uh, a big meeting in Puerto Rico. 
That's right. I was attending the annual meeting of the Paleoanthropology Society in San Juan. What really jumped out at you at that meeting? Well, one of the most exciting discoveries in recent years has been a set of fossils from a site called Dominici in the Republic of Georgia. And this is where the oldest human remains outside of Africa have turned up. And they're not at all what researchers expected to find. And how how are they not like what researchers expected? Well, the fossil record indicates that humans evolved in Africa as many as 7 million years ago. And prior to the Dominici discovery, it looked as though hominids didn't make it out until around a million years ago. So the conventional wisdom about this lengthy departure delay was that before humans could leave Africa, they needed to evolve long, striding limbs and also invent relatively more sophisticated stone tools. Okay, because you got to walk and you got to do things on the way. Right, you need to butcher. So the Georgian fossils, um, and these are, are representatives of the species Homo erectus, they show that the migration actually began much earlier than that because they're around 1.8 million years old. And they show that these first pioneers were, in fact, smaller and had more primitive tools than previously thought. Primitive tools, so they, they couldn't butcher necessarily, or they were just good enough to butcher but not good enough for anything else? They weren't as good at butchering as the people who came later who had fancier tools. So what does all this uh, tell us? What's what's the the new current picture of of the picture long ago? Well, all of this begs the question of what finally enabled our ancestors to leave their natal land and begin spreading across the globe. And at the meeting, Mark Meyer of the University of Pennsylvania gave a talk that suggested language was the key. Because if a bunch of people are on the move, they need to be able to say to each other, hey, get over here, we're going that way? Maybe. (laughs) So researchers thought that Homo erectus lacked the ability to speak because it possessed a spinal cord that was too small to control with sufficient precision the muscles involved in speech production. And this conclusion was based on what were, for a long time, the only known Homo erectus vertebrae, These are from a famous Kenyan fossil known as the Turkana boy. And the vertebral canals, and we're talking about the holes in the vertebrae through which the spinal cord passes, uh, the vertebral canals from this specimen were very constricted, indicating that the Turkana boy had a spinal cord that was really only about the size of a chimp's. But Meyer's analysis of the Dominici vertebrae and the Turkana ones showed that the Dominici people had vertebral canals that were just about as large as those of modern humans, and this suggests that they had modern spinal cords that would have enabled precise control over the diaphragm, the abdominals, and other muscles involved in speaking. So Meyer's work doesn't prove that Homo erectus communicated decent language, but it raises the possibility that these guys could have, and if so, maybe that's what allowed this species to become the trailblazer. Right. So the size of of your vertebral opening down in your lower back is going to be related to your ability to construct the sentences that we are using right now. That's right. And that doesn't say anything about whether Homo erectus had the sort of symbolic capacities that modern humans have. So we're really only talking about whether they had the physical ability to produce speech. So the specimen with the with the small openings in the vertebra. Is that an anomaly? Is that a, a diseased individual? What do people think that was? 
Well, Meyer thinks that the Turkana boy had a disease that constricted his spinal cord, and so therefore he's not, he doesn't represent the norm for Homo erectus. What's additionally interesting about that is that the disease may have posed chronic health and locomotor difficulties in this individual that actually got worse as he aged, and these problems could have included a spastic gait, numbness and weakness in his extremities, and, and abnormalities in his reflexes. So the fact that he survived beyond childhood with this debilitation hints that maybe other members of his group protected and provided for him. And interestingly enough, um, another example of of what possibly could have been compassion comes from that same Georgian site, Domenici, um, where last year excavators unearthed the skull of a very old individual who had lost all of his teeth while he was still alive. So he may have had to rely on others for help processing food just so that he could have enough to eat. So if Homo erectus was altruistic, um, as these findings would suggest, then that too may have helped facilitate that first migration out of Africa. So the uh, physical evidence also gives you some clues about whole social relationships. Exactly. Interesting. There's also been, this wasn't at your meeting, but there was a big or a small new dinosaur discovery. What's the story on this new dinosaur that's been found? That's right. Well, some paleontologists working in Germany found the remains of what appears to be a very small sauropod. Sauropods are the the long-necked dinosaurs that um, include some of the, the largest animals ever to walk the earth, things like Brachiosaurus that was 25 meters long. And Europosaurus, this new find, um, it appears to have only been a little more than six meters long. And there's a, a, a reason the uh, the folks who found this new dinosaur, they think they know why it's so small, relatively. Right. They suspect that this animal evolved a small size because it lived on an island, and the islands that it inhabited may not have been large enough to provide enough food for very large-bodied sauropods. So it's the dwarfism evident in this creature appears to have been an adaptive response to limited food resources in its environment. Well, thanks for the update, Kate. You're welcome, Steve, anytime. For more on the small sauropod, check out Kate Wong's entry at our blog. That's blog.siam.com. And Kate has an article on the Georgia research in a special human evolution anthology edition of Scientific American coming out in a couple of weeks. The issue is called Becoming Human. We'll be right back. Novartis, committed to making innovative medicines for a world of patients and their families, online at Novartis.com. Novartis, think what's possible. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review. Story one, genetic predisposition toward becoming an entrepreneur. Story two, new cell phone ringtone only heard by people with high IQs. Story three, lots of cell phone use by teens may be a sign of depression. Story four, long lost millipede found. And your time is up. Story one is true. Studies with identical twins show that if one twin has a freelance-type career, the other has a greater chance of also having such a lifestyle. The study was done at the Twin Research Unit of St. Thomas's Hospital in London. 
Story four is true. The many-legged millipede called Ilakmi plenipus, which translates to plentiful feet, has been rediscovered in San Benito County in California. Although possibly the leggiest of all millipedes, it hasn't been seen since it was first identified in 1926, in large part because, frankly, no one was really looking for it, and it's probably really, really fast. That leaves our two cell phone stories. Lots of use by teens being associated with depression or new ringtone, only audible by smart people. To clear up the mystery, here is a sample of that ringtone. Relax, you're smart. I'm yanking you. I didn't really play anything. The true story is that a study presented at the American Psychiatric Association meeting in May found a correlation between very high cell phone use by high school students and higher scores on tests for depression and anxiety. But even the lead author of the study thinks that perhaps the teens are just experiencing teen angst, which means that the ringtones only audible to smart people is totally bogus. What's true, however, is that there is a new ringtone called Teen Buzz, supposedly inaudible to most adults who lose the ability to hear very high-frequency sounds, whereas many teenagers can still hear the sounds. The buzz was actually originally created to drive kids away from places that wanted an adult clientele, but kids have taken the sound and co-opted it for their own purposes, allowing them to buzz each other in classrooms with the teacher usually remaining oblivious. Said one student, and who can argue with that? We'll be right back. Couple of corrections on the May 31st podcast. I said that Jupiter's great red spot is as wide as an Earth diameter. Podcast listener Tom Besor Besir Beswa Tom Beswa. He's actually an old friend of mine. He wrote to point out that it's actually two Earth diameters across. Thanks, Tom. And on the June 7th podcast, we talked about the lack of any census of breeding bird pairs in Central Park. Marie Wynn, who was on the June 7th program, wrote in to say that there was, in fact, such a census done in the mid 90s, and that although it sounds like there are thousands of robins in the park, there are probably only hundreds of breeding pairs, which is not surprising since it's very expensive to find a place to live with a view of Central Park. Well, that's it for this edition of the Scientific American podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam dot com, and also remember that science news is updated daily on the Scientific American website www dot siam dot com. For science talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank you.